Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Test, test. That good? Oh, this is going to be an adventure today. <laughs> Not used to holding one of these, so. <laughs> uh, just a quick kind of clarification. What is ordination? Ben's getting ordained. I don't know what that is. What's going on? The Church of the Nazarene holds the ministry in a particularly high regard. Um, and so it requires for a person to become an elder, an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, to meet certain requirements. And two of those requirements are um, you have to have a certain uh, amount of education, and then you also have to have a certain amount of experience. And um, if you don't know this, Ben has been um, in school over the last few years finishing up his degree. And uh, he is done, and he is, uh, is uh, going to get his degree. And uh, so he's met that requirement. The experience requirement, he's already way past that. I think it's three, full -time, three years full-time ministry. And so he's, what, working on year eight here? Um, so he is, he's, he's just meeting everything that moves him to a position where he is now a candidate to be an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene. The third thing is just, does this man, through the oversight of our district, of leadership, does he have the gifts and graces uh, to be a minister? And um, so he's met all those requirements. And so he's, uh, he's going to be ordained, which is a big thing in his personal life. The best way I can explain it is maybe um, uh, uh, some of you, uh, maybe in your union shops, and you're doing an apprenticeship, right? And you get through the apprenticeship, and you... Uh, um, you, you move on, and that's what's happening for him personally. But we want to celebrate that as a church. And so that Sunday afternoon from 2 to 4 here, you can come. We'll have cake and punch and all that stuff and um, just uh, celebrate with him this, this next step in his life. Um, uh, we tease him now. He, he's actually going to become official now. So this is all just something. No, but uh, so Romans chapter 15, verse 4 says this. 
For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Uh, Romans 15, 4. It was written so that to teach us. I'm all messed up. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The idea is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, the Old Testament and the New was written, all very intentional to give us encouragement and to give us hope. Now, if you've opened the Scriptures, you've read through the Bible, you realize that there are parts of the Bible that are a lot of explaining who God is and explaining what God wants us to do. But there are vast amounts of Scripture that are... uh, Uh, recordings of people's lives of stories the reason why we keep going back to the movies and we keep watching movies we keep reading books is primarily because we love stories we identify with stories we uh, we find in stories hope for our own lives we see ourselves we understand life a little better and the scriptures are absolutely intentionally recorded the lives of stories of men and women to give us encouragement and to give us hope and so this summer we want to do that we want to jump in to the lives of 10 people in scripture and just try to see their lives and understand their lives because in doing so first of all we begin to understand a little bit more about god how he reacts, how he responds, what he thinks, what he's calling for our lives, what he, uh, uh, how much he loves us. We see that through the stories of the men and women of Scripture. And two, it helps us to understand how we are to respond. And, and um, the stories give us a sense of uh, it incarnates truth. It's like I, can, I get this idea about God when I see it lived out in these stories or it it um it uh, helps us to uh have it gives us hope it gives us stability when we see uh in scripture who went through similar experiences that we're going through and we're able to identify and we're able to find encouragement we're able to see hey this happened in their lives and god was faithful this is happening in my life and the the reality is that God will continue to be faithful in my life also. Um, and so we just want to jump in and, and understand the lives of, of the men and women of Scripture. Um, and the first guy I, wanna, I want to uh, talk about is a guy who, uh, he's known as a friend of God. He's known as the father of faith. Now, when I say he's known as the father of faith, the model of faith, that means something to us, or that should. The scriptures are very clear. Hebrews would tell us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Faith is absolutely essential to our relationship with God. And so if you're going to tell me, Chip, about a guy who is called the father of faith, the model of faith, I'm interested. Because I understand that faith is what it connects me to God. In fact, the scriptures would go on to say that we live life by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. In fact, it tells us that faith 
is the victory that overcomes the world. What is going to enable me to not be swallowed up, defeated by this world? What is going to give me a sense of faithfulness, of strength, of victory in the middle of all of the trials and the, the, uh, the sufferings of this world? What is going to give me victory over all of the temptations and the snares of this world? It's faith. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And this guy modeled is the father of faith. So that's important to me. I want to know what happened in his life and what faith looks like because then it means that I can be connected to God and I can live a life of victory um, here. Um, I'm talking about the guy named Abraham. And if you were to be reading the story of God in the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to this guy. Genesis chapter 11, we... We kind of, we understand where he came from, but it's in Genesis chapter 12 we are, identi- we, are identi- we are introduced to him. You have to understand some context of Abraham's life. Con- uh, the context is that after the Tower of Babel, when God dispersed all people everywhere because of their, um, because of their pride, uh, God uh, dispersed them everywhere. All these civilizations sprung up all over the place. They were disconnected. And in this particular place in Ur of the Chaldeans is where Abraham grew up. It was called the cradle of civilization. It's the first place where cities and established societies started to come together. A very connected, a very prosperous, a very peaceful part of the world. That's where Abraham grew up. We read that he, he, uh, he grew up in a home that was well-to-do, was well-off. His dad had done well, and he had started to do well, and, and um, they were just they were successful. He grew up in a culture where there was no understanding of a God. Everything was God's. There were gods for everything. It was a very polytheistic society. It was not monotheism. Abraham would have would have spent the first 75 years of his life worshiping the God for the rain and worshiping the God for the crops and worshiping the God of this and the God of that. That's what he knew. That's what they did. In fact, their their main God, the moon God, uh, who kind of ironically his name was Sin, S-I-N, was the God they worshipped above all other gods. And in the moon god sin, there was this idea of a God who gave fertility, a God who gave the ability for fertility, and that was worshipped above everything else. To be able to reproduce, to recreate, was considered the chief virtue of everything. And Abraham lived in this society. In fact, no doubt, because we read that Abraham, who when we're introduced to him is 75, and his wife Sarah is 65, they cannot have kids. Um, She is barren. And so no doubt, in a society that worshipped above all gods, this God of fertility, there is no doubt that Abraham and Sarah spent a lot of time and made many trips to the temple of the moon god, trying to uh, offer sacrifices, calling out on that god to uh, give them a child. You see, Abraham, when we're introduced to him, has absolutely no background, of the one true living God, has no concept 
of the one true living God is comfortable in his own world, is successful in what he's doing, is living with peace. The only thing he doesn't have is, is they don't have a child. And into that life, Genesis chapter 12 records what happens. It goes this way. The Lord says to Abraham, he speaks. This one God speaks into this guy's life and says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is an unbelievable promise. But you got to think about Abraham. He is hearing from a God he doesn't necessarily, has, he hasn't believed in, has no concept of. He is being promised something that now at this stage in his life is like, yeah, it's, if it's too good to be true, it's probably not, right? I mean, he's being told he's going to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham and Sarah are sitting there with no kids. And yet we read these words in verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And we read that all of his people went with him also. Lot, his nephew, and um, Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. This is a bold, bold move on Abraham's part. And that's what I want us to grab a hold of, first of all, uh, as we're just being introduced to Abraham. Faith carries with it a bold nature, a risky thing, a promise that's not yet seen. Are you grabbing a hold of that? Because God calls us to be people who live with faith, who are accustomed to having faith. We live in a world where see it, believe it. Experience it, touch it, smell it. I got to see what Abraham left. And the scriptures in the New Testament give us more commentary in Hebrews. It says, by faith, Abraham left going to a country or a place that he didn't even know where he was going. That's where we're introduced to this guy. And this is his story. He uproots out of his comfortable, successful uh, environment to follow a God he's never really understood or known about to a place that he doesn't know where he's going. And I want you to see that the story of Abraham is a story of a man who God called to obey without giving him complete information about what that obedience was going to mean. God called him to obey without complete information. And yet Abraham responds. And you would say, wow, this is incredible. And we begin to read down through Abraham's life. You know what? This is going to take off. He's, he, I mean, who does that? Just, okay, 
I believe. I'm going. And you would think that all of a sudden, that as he goes to this land, everything's going to just be unbelievable. And yet we read that as so often happens, that many times when we obey God, it's not always a bed of roses, is it? God doesn't always promise that in following after him that everything in life just comes together and it's perfect and it's happily ever after. We read that Abraham leaves and we read through chapter 12 where he comes to a place where he decides to settle down and God is making promises. This is your land, Abraham. Everything you see is yours. And Abraham, he makes an altar and it's like, wow, here we go. And the great nation's going to come. And then we begin to read a little bit farther. We come just 10, 10 verses into chapter 12, only eight verses after he's spoken to Abraham to do this bold thing. And we read these words. Now there was a famine in the land. I'm following you, God. I've, t- I've left everything that I've known. I'm making this risky move. I'm trusting you because I believe in the words you've said. And now all, I'm out here on my own, so to speak. And all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by circumstances that would cause a famine. This is pinching me. This is, and so Abraham realizes I have to do something about this or he thinks I have to I have to do something about this and I can't survive here so I'm going to need to go over to Egypt I've already left my homeland I'm out in the middle of nowhere I'm going to have to go to a different country just to survive because they have the means the, to sustain uh, through a famine and we read that he, uh, Abraham goes down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And we begin to be introduced to this path, this walk of faith that Abraham has. And we realize, just like in our own lives, that this man who made a bold move is literally entrusting his life on the promise of God when things get a little bit rough or a lot rough, that in the moments where it seems like it's all self-preservation, he begins to take things back into his own hands. The Bible uses words like she was a beautiful woman, okay? Um, in other, phrase, in other uh, places, it would make reference to this. And what I, I, simply in the 21st century, it would be easier to say that Sarah was smoking hot. Basically, that's what the Bible's saying. She was so attractive that Abraham knew that as soon as I get to this this country, Egypt, that is sovereignly controlled by one man who does whatever he wants, takes whatever he wants, controls everybody's lives, she is so hot. Is that even appropriate for me to say? So beautiful that he's going to want her. 
and I'm going to be in trouble. Because what Pharaoh wants, Pharaoh gets. And you know what he's going to do with me if I'm her husband? Yeah, I'm going to eliminate that part. And so they, they do this thing, right? You're my sister. And they go. And sure enough, what happens? They get there. And word reaches Pharaoh's palace. Have you seen the new guy that showed up? Um, have you seen his sister? She is incredibly beautiful. And Pharaoh's interested. And sure enough, Pharaoh's like, I want her. And what does Abraham do? You can have her. I got to survive here. I'm just her brother. And so the story goes that, listen to this. <laughs> Abraham, Sarah, goes to the palace. She is going to become Pharaoh's wife. Abraham is just her little brother, her poor brother, who Pharaoh wants to make a good impression on because that's the way in that custom. If you were family and I'm marrying you, I'm going to treat your family well. And so what does Pharaoh begin to do? He begins to just gift Abraham all this stuff, all these gifts, all these animals, all this. this. And Abraham is living in Egypt, living it up large, while his wife is sitting in the palace, waiting to become Pharaoh's wife. The custom of that day was when Pharaoh or a king or a monarch took a wife um, because of the, you know, the wanting the pure bloodlines and all that, there would be a waiting period, normally about three months, before Pharaoh would have taken Sarah as his wife because he wanted to make sure that she wasn't pregnant. And then it would have been, well, you know, that's not Pharaoh's son, and he's supposed to become the next Pharaoh. He's not really, you get what I'm. And so Sarah sits in the palace waiting as Abraham, you see this weird dynamic going on? Where it's like Abraham, who was so bold to leave everything, becomes so fearful that it just creates a mess. He's about ready to lose everything or lose Sarah. And God intervenes. Faithfully, God intervenes, right? And God sends a disease into Pharaoh's household. I don't know what it was, but it got Pharaoh's attention really fast. And those guys in that day, they, they had a lot more spiritualism to them. And he began to realize instead of, hey, it's just a virus going around. Or, Somebody got sick and now they're passing around. He began to realize something's not right here. We're sick for a reason. And basically by the end of the tale, um, he realizes Sarah is that guy's wife. It's not his sister. But the disease is so severe that he wants nothing to do with them. And he's definitely not going to kill them. And that's normally what have happened. You fooled me, you're done. Both of you. you lie to me. But because of the, the he realized that Abraham's God had sent this disease. He's thinking, if I, if I even mess with these people anymore, it's going to get worse for me. And so he literally sends Abraham out, and he doesn't take back anything that he's given him. Abraham leaves there much wealthier than when he ever went. And Abraham's life for the years, the few years after that, it's, it's just like God began to bless Abraham. And he began to accumulate possessions and wealth. And in that day, that was animals and, right? and all that. And he became so wealthy 
that his nephew had gotten in on it also and had started his own herds and they had grown and they had grown that literally you begin to have two two um uh, com- uh, like groups or camps that they're just too big for the area. And we read that Abraham goes to his nephew Lot and says, Lot, um, you know, this is causing problems now. We're just too big for this area. We're starting, our, our workers are starting to quarrel. Whose is this? What's that? You're taking the grass. We need the grass. We can't survive. All this stuff, he says, Lot. And why I share this part of the story is I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to see that Abraham looked at Lot and said, look, Lot. Now, Abraham's the big dog. Lot's the nephew, right? Abraham can do what he wants. Abraham looks at Lot and says, hey, you pick whatever place you want. I'll take whatever's left. And we read that, that Abraham, there's a sense that his faith is, is growing some. He makes this bold move. He definitely, if he takes, Two steps forward, he took one step back in Egypt. But now he's got this growing realization that, that God's, God's got him. He can tell Lot, hey, you take the great grass, the best stuff. I'm okay because God called me out here. He made a promise to me. And we read through chapter 13 where that is happening, where, where Lot, Abraham just let Lot have whatever. And in fact, after Lot takes whatever, God says to Abraham, Abraham, everything you see is yours. He keeps making him promises. He keeps making him promises. We would continue to read about this man who is now becoming um, uh, wealthy and uh, things are going great. But guess what? He left for a reason. He left because of a promise. And yet, month after month, Year after year, nothing is happening. And Abraham is getting older and older and older. And in Genesis chapter 15, we read that the Lord uh, speaks to Abraham again. And he reassures him again, Abraham, I, I, I'm promising you, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And by this time, Abraham, though, is thinking, well... I guess the way this is going to happen is my servant is going to inherit my whole estate. He's going to have kids, and that's how this is going to work. To which God says, no, Abraham, you are going to be the father of a great nation. And he's making that promise, and he makes a covenant with Abraham through chapter, the end of chapter 15. But we begin to read in chapter 16, we're introduced to this idea. We're introduced that after 10 years of having left everything, of living in a land that wasn't theirs, of literally the scriptures say he moved around like a nomad, just clinging to the promise of God. He was in a land that was promised to him, but it wasn't really his. Other, other countries had it. Um, uh, other peoples lived there, and they weren't his he was just among them. And this promise of being the father of a great nation, nothing's coming to pass. Finally, his wife comes to him and says, Abraham, um, I'm not having kids. I'm 76 now. You're 86. I don't think this is happening. So we must, we must be responsible 
for doing something to help God's plan. Because we're out here because we're getting... So maybe we need to do something to help God's plan along. And so she tells Abraham, listen, I've got a, a servant named Hagar. Uh, she came from Egypt. When we came back from Egypt, she came from Pharaoh. Uh, she was part of the gift that was given. He said, I want, you to, uh, I, I want you to go into her and, and uh, take her as a, as a wife. It wasn't really a wife, but kind of a wife. And I want you to have a child with her. And we read, to which Abraham agrees. And sure enough, within nine months, Hagar has a son. Um, his name is Ishmael. And Abraham thinks, and Sarah thinks, all right, so we have uh, we've just had to help God's plan along here. We read down through chapter 16, and we see that um, maybe, maybe what becomes the first Jerry Springer episode. Because you know what happens. I mean, Sarah can't have kids. Hagar gets pregnant. Hagar starts to have a dismissive attitude towards Sarah. Sarah begins to feel that, right? And so she starts to mistreat Hagar, and it's just like a whole Jerry Springer episode. And so finally, the mistreatment gets so bad from Sarah that Hagar just takes off. She just leaves. I can't deal with this anymore. I'm out of here. And we read through chapter 16 where God follows after Hagar and speaks to Hagar and makes promises to Hagar. It says, come back. And Hagar comes back. And we read that the years continue to pass. Ishmael starts to grow. and God still is, every once in a while, he makes a promise. He makes a promise to Abraham. He reminds him, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. In chapter 17, we actually read that, that God says that to him. And Abraham makes a comment, yeah, yeah, I, Ishmael, right? Ishmael. That you're going to use Ishmael, to which God says, no, Abraham, I'm not. It's not Ishmael. And then he asked Abraham to, to continue to do things that were out of the ordinary. He, he calls him to, to believe in the symbolism of what the new Jewish nation would, would be represented by. And that was that, that males would be circumcised. He asked Abraham to do that then, before a child was ever, as a 90-year-old man. He says, listen, are you going to believe me? Will you continue to do these things? To which Abraham was like, what in the world is going on here? God is asking me to do crazy stuff. Yet, he continues to believe. Chapter 18, we read that God shows up. He comes with two angels, right? The incarnate Christ, pre-incarnate Christ and two angels visit Abraham. And this is when Abraham has now come to a point where he's 99 years old. And now for 24 years, he has left everything he knew based on a promise from God. And he's lived in a land where he's a nomad. And he's, he's endured the whole famine story. And he's actually tried to help God by having a child himself with another woman. And, and um, 
God visits him and he's 99. And basically the way that story goes is he shows up and Abraham realizes there's something different about these guys. He doesn't know who they are at first, but he realizes they're important people. And he hurries and has a meal put together. And as they're sitting and eating and as Sarah is, in the, is preparing the meal, the, the, uh, the Lord looks at Abraham and says, um, I will surely come back in a year. And Abraham, you're going to have a son, you and Sarah. And Abraham realizes it's the Lord at that point. Sarah starts laughing in the tent, right? Like, yeah, right. I'm 76 now, or I'm 86 now. There's no way. And we read that the Lord just patiently continues to promise Chapter 18 finishes with those two angels that were with the Lord. It says they continued on down to the valley where Sodom and Gomorrah was, where Lot was. And you know that whole story where they go in and in any way and God ends up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, but rescuing Lot. And we read 18 and 19 have to deal with that. By the time we get to chapter 20, we realize that Abraham, because of what had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, he moves uh, his whole camp to another area, what would become the Philistines' land. And he moves to a place where there's a powerful king. And guess what happens again? This powerful king, who can do whatever he wants, decides that he wants Abraham's wife. Again, man, she's 86 now. Telling you, very attractive woman, 86. And guess what Abraham does again? Tell him you're my sister, or tell him you're my sister. The whole deja vu all over again, Abraham does it again. And sure enough, guess what happens? Abimelech, because things start to happen, realizes, nope. It's amazing this this journey that Abraham was on. And in chapter 21, after 25 years and all this circus in between, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. 100 years old, Abraham was. They named Isaac, well, they, they named him Isaac, and it means he laughs. Abraham had laughed at times at God's promise. Sarah had laughed at times at God's promise. And now God laughs at those who laugh at his promise. In Isaac, he laughs. And we read down through chapter 21 and we realize Isaac's here and the promise is fulfilled. We, we read, though, a little bit farther and we see some more details to the story that we need to understand because when Isaac came to be about three years old um, that was typically the time that uh, a baby would 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 be weaned off its mother and they had a huge party right we live in a totally different culture now don't we way different we read these things are like whoa you know they had a party man a weaning party I've never been to one of those but that's what they did then. It was a big deal in that culture. And three-year-old Isaac, man, he's ready to, you know, I don't know. 
going to pre-K or so, you know, like I don't know what you next stage. But he's being weaned. And in that dynamic, though, Ishmael, who's now a 17-year-old boy, and, and he's having to deal with Abraham had treated him well. And, and yet he had been favored for so long. But now, obviously, the son of promise is here, and he's threatened by that. And you know what that is. You know, you've had older kids, a new one comes in, and there's jealousy in it. It becomes a whole problem. It becomes such a problem that finally Sarah says, listen, we cannot coexist. There's no way. And so Abraham has to send off Hagar and Ishmael out, and they were never to return again. You know, Ishmael was sent out, and him and his mom survived, and God actually was with them. And Ishmael, it, we read the story of Ishmael that his mom found some people and they became a part of that. And she found Ishmael a wife. And that out of that, Ishmael then became the father of a great nation himself. A large nation himself. It is today, the modern day, the Arab nations trace their ancestry back to, to Ishmael. And in that, we see something that we need to understand. We need to be reminded of. Isaac was the son of promise for the Jewish people. Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. Can anybody tell me how that has went? Not very well. It hasn't went well for, well, since about the beginning. And it's just a reminder, I think the Lord intentionally does this in Scripture, to remind us that so often when we take things into our own hands, the consequences of those actions can be far-reaching. It's what God says when he says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And Sarah and Abraham decided to bring about God's plan through their own efforts. And in doing so, they created the greatest adversary that God's promised people have ever had. To this day, you turn on the news. Just last week, there was a skirmish. There's people being killed. And now down through the centuries and the years, millions of people have been killed because of the animosity between these two peoples. Just a reminder to us. Ishmael's gone. Isaac's here. It's happily ever after, right? It's chapter 21's done. God's going to do it. God's come through. The great people is going to happen. There is joy everywhere. There is celebration, jubilation. And yet we turn the pages in Scripture to chapter 22. And we come to this final, I think, final explanation point on Abraham's life and on what faith really is. Because we open the, pay, we open the chapter 22 and we read these words. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, here I am. God said, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. 
sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. If you're like me, when you read that story for the first time, it really kind of messed with you. It still to me is the most startling story in all of the, of the Old Testament. Everything has come to pass. God has fulfilled his promise. This nation is going to happen. And yet God does something that causes all of us to step back. And he says, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him to me. What kind of God? And we read through chapter 22. Can you imagine that day? And we read some of the details of the story as they go away. I want you to realize what Abraham does. Abraham doesn't say, no way. All right, we're done. I got what I wanted. We're done. He doesn't say, there's no way you're asking me that. I'm going to wait. I'm going to put out a few fleeces. What does Abraham do? That very day, the one he loves, the one he promised, the one he left everything for, the one who... He takes him. And you remember the story. And I, I just wish, don't you wish you'd have been a, a fly on a donkey then? Couldn't be a fly on a wall, but you could have been a fly on a donkey. Because we read that as they go and as they head up the mountain and it becomes just the two of them, the servants stay back. Isaac begins to look around. He knows what this story is. He knows what sacrificing is. It's no, he's, and he begins to ask, Dad, you got the wood? You got everything? Where's the animal? And they get up on top of the mountain, Moriah. And Abraham binds his son's hands and lays him on the altar. Which is remarkable, Isaac's response, is it not? Because he's a young man. He could have overpowered his father. But he trusts his father. And we read that Abraham is, to, is taking the knife. And just as he would have done with a sacrifice, he is getting ready to slit the throat of his son. And God calls out and says, Abraham, don't. There's a lamb in the thicket. You know what the New Testament tells us, what God tells us later about that day? He tells us that Abraham so trusted in God. He believed in God's goodness and in God's plan so much that even when God asked him to do this very thing, the scriptures say that Abraham believed that even though he might slay Isaac, God would raise Isaac from you talk about the most radical, bold faith you can imagine. And that is why he is called the father of faith. You see, there's four things I would just briefly remind you of. We see through Abraham's life a path of faith. Faith is bold. It's risky. 
It's willing to embrace that which is unseen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. We as Christians are called to live in the arena of faith. I don't look at that person who is addicted by drugs and I don't look at my son or my relative who is bound by chains or I don't look at circumstances and just, okay, that's what it is. It is what it is. I am called to live in an arena of faith where I can see what is not yet done yet as Abraham himself did. He went to a country not knowing where he went. He lived for 25 years not seeing the promise. But the scriptures say he did not waver concerning the promise. Now he might have tried to help God out. He might have got it, you know, he might have manipulated, tried to manipulate at times. But at the heart of the thing, Abraham never gave up in believing that God was going to do something that he could not see right now. And you and I as Christians are called to live with this bold faith. We live by faith, not by sight. Now it affects the way we see things through a spiritual nature. We live by faith. And so our circumstances never triumph over us because we believe and trust and know who we are as God's children. And we have this confidence and this joy in the midst of everything. But I believe that God is challenging us to begin to uh, embrace this idea of what it is to be people of faith. What is it? What miracle, what huge thing in your life that you've mailed it in on already because you're just like, I can't see it. It's never going to happen. Where maybe God is wanting you to believe and trust in him to see things that are unseen become reality. That's this kind of nature of faith that Abraham modeled for us. The great majority of people never experience the joys of a faith journey because they won't take the first step without knowing the precise destination. So often we have to know too much until we act and God calls us to trust in Him when He speaks to us. To go with maybe not knowing the final thing. To go with not having all the complete information. But at the heart of it, we trust and believe in His goodness and His plan above what we know and can see. You know, if we know the detail, if we have the, if we know the destination and have all the details, we don't need faith and we never experience its rewards. God's obedience requires slightly more faith than what we have experienced at the last stop we see that faith is filled with patience 25 years you know i went to a college where all over that campus there was this saying of one of its professors god's clock keeps perfect time god's clock keeps perfect time and so often I know in my own life I've been tempted or maybe at times I've mailed it in on something God wanted to do in my life because I grew impatient with him. We live in a microwave society, right? And if God doesn't come through by day three, then God must not be in it. Faith does not operate that way. It continues to trust and believe in God's plan and God's promise. There's a patience to faith. There's a power of faith. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, Abraham believed and it was credited him as righteousness. 
There is a power that faith, it is what opens our relationship with God. It's the just live by faith. Faith it brings, there's a power to it that connects us with God and unleashes God's tremendous blessing into our life. And you see through Abraham's life, every time he would be like, okay, Lot, take whatever because I'm God's and he'll take care of me. After that, God would promise him like, it's all yours. It's all yours. The blessing that comes from living by faith is like unlike any other blessing we can ever experience. And I would also remind you that there's a proof of our faith. The story with Isaac reminds us that God will always, always ask of us what is most precious to us. He will ask us to entrust him with it. He will ask us to be willing to take our hands off of it. Because in so doing, we prove where our primary trust and hope and faith is in. It's in God and God alone. When we can get to that point, when we can live that life and we can have that faith, watch out. Watch out. God started a whole nation through Abraham. I'm not going to promise you he's going to do that through you today. But I am going to promise you that when people live with the kind of faith that Abraham modeled, God does miraculous and huge things through their life. Mountains will move, things will change, and you will be able to be an instrument, a, a channel of what God wants to do in this world. It's that kind of faith that he calls us to. Abraham modeled that. What's cool to me is Abraham, he didn't get it right all the time, did he? He was not perfect. He screwed up. He caused unnecessary harm in his life. That gives me a lot of hope. Because guess what? If God's looking for someone to be perfectly trust him, I'm already disqualified. And I would imagine that most of you are too. God still faithfully uses, calls, draws, patiently works with us, always trying to move us to a point where we too can have a Genesis 22 experience, where we can say even the most precious thing in my life, I trust God with it. To live that kind of life, is to live a life of radical, powerful faith. That's what God calls us to. Father, go with us. Thank you for these lives, these stories. Uh, could have spent four weeks on Abraham, just touched on the highlights. Lord, continue to use the stories of men and women in Scripture to challenge us, to give us hope, to open our eyes, to see the truth lived out so that we too can live out the truth. Go with us this week. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. You called me from the grave by name.